Hello, it's me, Professor Kozlowski. I have finally returned from my long hiatus. Uh, it was a wild semester this past year, as you would probably expect from it being 2021 and everything being positively nuts, but it got even more nuts toward the end, and I suspect that even now in the middle of June I'm not quite out of the woods yet. Um, but after quite a bit of rest and recuperation after the end of this extremely stressful semester, I am back. It's time to do another lecture. Um, and part of the reason why I want to do another lecture is because I've got such a good question to work with this time around. Um, about halfway through last semester in February, good grief, time has fly flown, um, a student at, I believe it's University of South Florida, uh, named Summer Thomas contacted me and asked a question that I have heard what must be a hundred times at this point. And I have been itching for the opportunity to sort of approach this question more systematically. Um, so Summer wrote, uh, on top of being a philosophy student, I am also a Christian and I often find it difficult to reconcile what many refer to as the God of the Old Testament, a God who seems violent, bitter, and far from the God that Jesus represents and preaches. In the past, I've mostly avoided thinking about some of the things told in the Old Testament, such as God sending a pack of bears to maul 42 young punks for calling Elisha Baldy. But if I am to be a good philosophy student and an honest Christian, I have to face the Old Testament and work to understand it better. However, I have no idea where to start. As you pointed out in one of your lectures, there's a lot of junk out there with bad information on the Bible. I'm hoping you can point me in a better direction for the answers I seek. And I love this question. Like, I run into it all the time. Virtually every time I have taught my, my class on the Bible, like every year, every semester for virtually every class, I end up having that discussion. I almost always inevitably get something along the lines of why is the God of the Old Testament so mean versus the God of the New Testament who's so nice. Um, and I, and part of the reason why I love this question is because I am in fact an Old Testament guy. Like back when I was at seminary, I found myself inexorably drawn to studying the Old Testament. Um, it makes sense to me. Uh, I, I love the storytelling nature of it. I, I love the, the sort of way that, you know, the various writers use these events in Israelite history to sort of narrate and expose God's activities. Um, and it is weird. Like, the story she points out here about Elisha and, you know, like, Elisha's embarking upon his ministry and apparently 42 children, youths, punks, like, all of these are fairly legitimate translations. The, the Hebrew words here are fairly ambiguous. Um, these 42 kids or something come out and start making fun of his bald head. And he's like, well, screw you. And he sends a bunch of bears and the bears like tear them apart. Or rather, like he curses them. He's like the text literally says um, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then two she bears, according to my good old King James, came out of the wood and tear 40 and two children of them. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, like, from a mythic perspective, this sounds fairly normal. Like, this is totally what you would run across in, like, Greek mythology or something, where you've got, you know, like, Zeus being vengeful or wiping out a whole island or something. Like, this happens all the time. Um, but in the Old Testament, 
you know, for Christians, we take this seriously. So if it says that a couple of bears came out and, and killed 42 kids, we are right to be a little shocked and appalled. Um, but I do want to emphasize that, again, this isn't an isolated incident. Like the big question that Summer is asking here, how do we reconcile the God of wrath of the Old Testament with the God of mercy of the New Testament? Like this is a big deal. Um, and this is also the sort of question that is hovering over a lot of Christian discourse these days. Like how to balance justice and mercy um, is probably one of the most difficult parts of being a Christian. Knowing when to be firm and when to be kind is really freaking tricky. Um, and what's more, the Bible doesn't always give us a clear understanding of how that works. Like, to, to sort of just expose exactly how wild the Old Testament can be, you know, this is hardly the most anti-humanitarian act taken by God in the Old Testament. Um, the one that most of the, the theologians I, I hung out with got sort of especially hung up on um, was what we usually refer to as the extermination of the Canaanites. Um, namely, when like the, the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years back in Exodus and Numbers, um, they get this opportunity to go into the promised land and they botch it. Like they show up at the doorstep and they and they send in spies, including Joshua, um, who funnily enough, they use the same word here as are referred to the youths here in second Kings. Um, the spies all go into the promised land and they come back and they're like, crap, this place is extremely well guarded. The Canaanites are huge. They're going to take us apart. There's no way we can overcome them. We should all just go back to Egypt and suffer slavery some more, um, which happens surprisingly often in the Pentateuch. Um, and Moses is like tearing his hair out and he's like, I cannot believe that you're doing this. And God is like, oh my gosh, you guys are all the worst. And as a result, all of you will wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, until the entire generation is wiped out and only then, only then will you get to go to the promised land. Um, the idea being that everyone who lost faith in this situation will be dead by then. Um, and then they go back to the promised land and God gives them new marching orders. Apparently when they were originally going to wander in, like God was going to send bees or something and the bees were going to like drive out the Canaanites and then they would just leave the whole countryside free for the Israelites to move in. Uh, but now he's got new rules. Now he says, okay, you're going to go into the promised land and you're going to kill everyone. Every man, every woman, every child. You will slaughter them wholesale, leave nobody alive. Um, this is genocide. Like, not going to put too fine a point on it. And I want to kind of emphasize this, actually, because... The fact of the matter is, we, glossing over the ugly and unpleasant and difficult parts of the Bible is a disservice to the Bible. Like, if we're going to be really good and especially scholarly and conscientious Christians, we have to understand exactly what's going on here, why God commands this. Um, fortunately, in this case, God is also pretty darn clear. Um, he says the reason why you're going to exterminate them, why you're not going to leave any men, women, and children alive is because I cannot trust you. 
Um, all you Israelites with your idolatrous tendencies, like you've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and practically like six times at this point, you've either committed rebellion or demanded to go back to Egypt or started sleeping with idolatrous uh, nations. Like literally in some cases, there's definitely a case of Phineas like trying to deliver a speech about purity while, you know, like uh, Israelites are cavorting with other Canaanites and he like runs into the tent and stabs them as they are having sex. Um, again, the Bible is wild. Um, suffice it to say that God doesn't trust the Israelites to coexist with idolaters. Um, and fun fact, he's right. Like literally the next 200 pages of the Bible after this particular section of Numbers and, and Exodus is gonna be you know the israelites fault like failing to do this like they do spare a bunch of the canaanite cities they take a bunch of canaanite slaves all against god's will and they fall into idolatry like throughout judges throughout first and second samuel throughout first and second kings there's this constant pattern of the israelites going back to idols rejecting god over and over and over again um, but that doesn't necessarily answer our question, because once again, we're at justice, we're at wrath, we're at God showing his fist instead of his open hand. Um, this seems much more like meanness than justice. Um, so this is kind of the key thing that I want to talk about. Um, I want to sort of discuss the ways that different philosophers and theologians, I want to talk about the three big approaches I've found to solving this problem is how can this be the same God? How can the God who commands the extermination of the Canaanites, who sends bears to rip apart 42 kids or whatever they are, how can that be the same God who sent Jesus and talks about love and is described as love by John? How can this be the same guy? Um, is this a religious difference? Like, is, did the Jews have some misconception about who God was? Or is there something that we're missing here? So that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, this huge question, how do we reconcile the God of wrath with the God of mercy? Um, before we get into that, I do want to cover, like, the actual Elisha and the Bears situation. Like, I find that you know, any time that I'm, I'm going to deal with big abstract philosophical questions, it's probably best to deal with the concrete first. Um, and just a little cursory research, I found this wonderful little article and really didn't end up reading it, but had to like get it summarized because I don't have a subscription. Um, but the authoritative article that I did track down was an article by Brian P. Irwin from the Tyndale Bulletin back in 2016. Um, called The Curious Incident of the Boys and the Bears, Second Kings 2 and the Prophetic Authority of Elisha. Um, and a few things about this particular passage. One, again, I don't know if it's boys, young men, youths. Um, there's a fairly wide range that could be described here. But I also think that probably it's closer to the mark to say that they skew young. Um, most of the examples I found that said, oh, well, they could be young men, um, they were kind of referring to the same term being used in Genesis and, and other places in the Pentateuch. Um, and generally speaking, the Hebrew of the Pentateuch and the Hebrew of um, First and Second Kings is different enough that I think that that might be like conflation. It, it might be more complicated than that. Um, so I'm hesitant to accept that particular argument. Um, they probably were 
kids-ish. Um, now, the second thing to notice is that uh, Elisha is on his way to Bethel at the moment, and Bethel, at the time of Second Kings, or at least at the time of this particular moment in Second Kings, is a hotbed of idolatry. Um, like, this is famously one of the places where there are tons of idols and shrines being set up to various Babylonian and Canaanite gods. Um, so as a consequence, the suggestion certainly seems to be that Elisha is going into hostile territory um, and being met by pagans, being met by idolaters. Um, the, the problem here isn't so much that, like, they call him Baldy in that case, but that they are hostile to God's presence in any way. Um, so there, there's definitely this sort of uh, dynamic here where, you know, God is punishing what he usually punishes in this case. The message is still pretty straightforwardly clear. God is not going to tolerate other gods. God is going to punish the people who worship them. God is going to punish the people who oppose him. Um, and that's kind of what brings us to the third point, which is Irwin's special thesis, from what I can tell. Um, apparently, this idea of Elisha being bald is actually connected to his master. Um, Elijah, who, you know, is kind of running the show before this passage in Second Kings, like he's running around at the end of First Kings and he's running around it like up until uh, the very early part of, of chapter two. Um, when a chariot of flaming steeds comes down and carries him up to heaven, making him the second person in biblical history to not die, but actually get like a one-way ticket directly to heaven. The other one is Enoch, and that one's a long time ago. Um, but Elijah is often referred to in First Kings as being especially hairy for some reason. Um, and symbolically, hair is associated with authority, leadership, and piousness. So, like, if you remember all the way back to Judges, um, like, there's that story of Samson who grows his hair out really long, and he tells Delilah that it's, like, his, his vulnerability, and if she cuts off his hair, he'll lose his super strength. That's because one of the, the um, qualifications for being a Nazarene, a sort of especially pious servant of God, was to never let a razor touch your head, to let your hair grow long. So hair is associated with authority and hair is associated with piety. And Elijah is described frequently as being very hairy. Um, so by sort of connection, when Elijah, Elijah disappears and he is like the authority, the chief, the head, so to speak, um, of Elisha, when the kids call Elisha baldy, they're not just saying, ha ha, you're bald. They're actually possibly suggesting um, that Elisha is powerless without Elijah's authority. Like, once again, we have a direct challenge to a prophet's authority. So when Elisha responds by cursing them, he is effectively announcing to the world that, no, he is still possessed of the same authority that Elijah had. He can still perform the same miracles, he still has God's ear, um, and God will protect him in the same way that God protected Elijah. Don't mess with Elisha because you don't mess with God. So once again, there seems to be some, some greater depth to this um, than just a bunch of kids running around calling people names. Um, this isn't quite as frivolous as it would seem. The symbolism is is stronger than that. Um, but that still doesn't answer our question about wrath and mercy. Um, so let's blow this out a bit, shall we? 
Um, there are several different approaches that I've seen that have helped me to sort of like deal with this, the whole justice mercy issue. Um, but we're going to get into some fairly philosophical high grass here. So be warned, like when I say that there are multiple approaches, that means that I'm going to not necessarily answer this question in one direct way. Instead, what I want to sort of emphasize is the different philosophical mindsets or the different theological approaches um, that I've sort of run across in my time, different ways of answering this question, because it isn't one that comes with a single prepackaged response. Um, it is difficult, and as a consequence, people have struggled with this for literally millennia, um, and that's okay. And in fact, the fact that it's okay is one of the things I want to emphasize along this way. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk approaches. The way that I see it, there are technically four, but we're really only going to talk about three. Um, and let's call them the skeptical approach, uh, because it is the approach that is usually practiced by atheists, people who do not have a terribly vested interest in Christianity, or people who tend to be fairly loosey-goosey about their inter interpretation of the Bible. Um, then we have the dispensationalist approach, which... It was only a matter of time until I ended up talking about dispensationalism, I suppose. It was one of the things that I studied a lot when I was in seminary because our seminary was heavily dispensationalist. And for once, it's actually useful. Like, this is one of the few occasions where I think that this might actually be a worthwhile theological principle to talk about. But we'll get to that and my jadedness a little while later. Um, we also have the, what I call the medieval approach, or I guess the conflationists approach. Um, I call it medieval because it's not exactly what Thomas Aquinas had in mind when he was doing the Summa Theologia, but it's definitely something that I, a conclusion that I've come to as a consequence of studying medieval thinkers like Aquinas, like Augustine. Um, I think it's a fairly natural consequence of their philosophy. Um, and then we have the existentialist approach, or probably more accurately, the Russian approach, because I'd love me some Russian literature. I've talked about it fairly extensively in some of my other lectures, and I think they actually offer a really interesting take on this particular question. Um, but let's start with the skeptical approach, because again, it's the one that I kind of want to rule out first. Um, but it is one that I will hear pretty frequently in a situation like this. Like anytime you run across something weird in the Bible, um, you will inevitably have people who just out of hand reject it. Um, and I, I say this saying, you know, atheists, like skeptics, uh, agnostics, yes, but also there are plenty of Christians who I do for all intents and purposes consider Christians who have questions about the Bible itself. Um, like, there's a kind of tense conversation that is always taking place among Christendom about how the scripture works and should be interpreted. Um, and there's... Different groups of Christians will consider the Bible authoritative in different ways. Um, so if we map this to like a liberal conservative spectrum where the liberals tend to, you know, say that they can dispose of or disregard or wildly interpret uh, passages of the Bible where the conservatives tend to think that like everything is exactly as it should be and everything is true and ev like no word should ever change. Um, 
there are definitely Christians on the more liberal side who would look at a passage like this and be like, this could be a misinterpretation, or this could be a scholarly error, or this could be a, like a story that got sort of bound up with Elisha and, and isn't true or real. Um, and I don't want to discount that, but I also don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Like, I could spend dozens of lectures talking about hermeneutics and how you interpret the Bible and different perspectives that are involved here. Um, I tend to think that this sort of liberal or mythologizing attitude, this approach to Christianity that is sort of skeptical or even critical um, of biblical authority is dodgy. Um, like, I don't blame Christians who take it, although I do kind of turn like I, i'm suspicious of it I, I wonder why because if you're going to start rejecting passages of the bible it becomes you in charge of the gospel and not the other way around you can't claim to live your life according to the teachings of a book if you're going to like cross out parts of the book willy-nilly um, the bible isn't a buffet you don't get to pick and choose what to believe about it um at least, like, it doesn't make sense to in my mind. Um, if this is the foundational authoritative scripture underlying my faith, if I'm going to, like, knock chunks out of it, I really can't say that I'm standing on the faith. Again, one man's opinion. Again, I do respect Christians who do take this approach. I'm not saying that they are 100% wrong. I say that they are playing with fire here it's dangerous to do this um, because if you're going to start ignoring certain passages what's to say you're not going to start ignoring more um, the idea that we are all engaged in some communal religion here implies that we are all submitting to a common authority that god is the same for me as he is for you and the only basis we have to do that, besides our own personal experience, which varies wildly from person to person, is the text sitting in front of us. Um, I don't necessarily believe that the text is inerrant, according to like the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Like I struggle with that one. Um, there's like that's sort of the far conservative side of biblical interpretation, where like every word is exactly what God said, and God never lies, and like it's it's it gets a little rough. Um, I can see the, the argument behind it, and some days I feel like inerrancy probably is closer to the mark. Um, but generally, having been a student of language for as long as I have and trying to understand how language works and reading, you know, Derrida and Russell and Wittgenstein, I tend to think that inerrancy isn't the way we should be looking at language generally. Like... The, the idea that every single sentence boils down to a truth or falsity value is dodgy, mistaken, I think. Um, so I absolutely hold the authority of Scripture. And I absolutely hold the inerrancy if by inerrancy we mean every word is meant to be there. Like, God doesn't make mistakes. This is his Bible. If it's got weird passages in it, that's our problem, not his. Um, that's my take on it, like my brief thumbnail sketch version. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, every word is true, every word is in correspondence with reality. Like, I, I don't even know what truth value we're using for some of this, some of the scriptures. So I hold its authority, I reject a hard version of inerrancy. Um, but with that in mind, like, again, that discussion 
could probably come way down the line um, and take up a lot of our time. Suffice it to say that I'm not going to take seriously the possibility that the Old Testament got God wrong. Um, I'm just not. Like, you could make the argument people have. I don't necessarily think that those people are disqualified from being Christians, but I do think it's extremely dangerous. And I think it's more profitable to try and understand what the Old Testament is, in fact, actually telling us through these stories that seem occasionally violent, mean, or difficult to, to wrap our brains around from our enlightened Christian merciful perspective. Um, so let's rule that one out. Like the skeptical approach may very well be, maybe this story is bogus. Maybe we're not understanding something properly. I'd say we have to work harder than that. Um, we have to try and figure out why God is depicted the way that he is. Um, so with that in mind, there's kind of two obvious answers um, to the question, how do you reconcile the God of mercy with the God of, like, wrath? Um, and the two obvious answers are, well, either you do or you don't. Like, either God has in fact changed, and wrath was appropriate at one point, but mercy is appropriate now, or we do need to reconcile them. Like, we do need to somehow see how the same God can be both of these things, how both of these things are consistent, um, so on and so forth. Um, so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the dispensationalist approach. Um, and the reason why I want to start here is because this is the sort of theological framework that emphasizes that God hasn't himself changed, but that his plan for humanity has. Um, so dispensationalism, not to like get too deep into the theological nuances here, Dispensationalism argues that the Bible and biblical history and the history of salvation, the history of God's interactions with human beings, can be divided into different dispensations. Um, God's mercy, his love, his justice has looked different ways at different times in history according to his plan. Um, and dispensationalists will argue endlessly about exactly how the dispensations work, how many are there, you know, what does each one of them actually look like, what are the changes in each case. Suffice it to say that there are major turning points in the Bible. Um, like every dispensationalist worth his salt recognizes that whatever was going down in the Garden of Eden is its own dispensation. Like God put Adam and Eve in the garden, said, hey, go nuts, just don't eat from the tree. That's the dispensation there. Like abundance, um, love, just obvious grace. Like the food has fallen off the trees into their hands. They don't have to work. There's no violence. There's no awfulness. The world before sin is its own dispensation. And as a consequence, it has its own set of rules. Like, God didn't have to say, don't murder in the Garden of Eden, because nobody would have anyway. Like, the first murder doesn't happen until Cain and Abel, well after they are evicted from the Garden of Eden. But that's the point. When Adam and Eve sin, the dispensation changes. God's rules change. The fundamental rules of the universe change. Um... Now, different sort of schools of thought, like you'll hear Episcopalians or Presbyterians talk instead about economies rather than dispensations. The terminology, I think it's a, a difference without a distinction or a distinction without a difference. It's purely semantic. The point here is that God's plan for humanity has changed. 
And for our purposes, most notably, the plan for humanity changed very radically between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, God operated by rules. So post Garden of Eden, post like Noah and Abraham and so on and so forth, once you get to Moses, the whole dispensation that God is participating in, the economy of grace in this particular moment in history, is the law. God gives the Israelites the law, he gives them the Ten Commandments, he gives them all the rules that are handed down in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and the Israelites are required to obey those laws. And in fact, you can see the law as a manifestation of God's grace in this way. The lawless people that existed before the law came to save them were violent and mean and awful. Um, and the Israelites are pure, they are righteous, they are good, they are beloved in God's eyes as a consequence of the fact that they have the law. The law is a gift in that sense. Um, but by the New Testament, when you have Jesus showing up, the law is radically changed. Now, Jesus admittedly says not one jot nor one tittle will pass from the law. But at the same time, our relationship to the law has changed. Like the Israelites under the law, the law was absolute. Like if you disobeyed any of the rules, you had to go and sacrifice animals in order to make yourself right with God. You had to present the sin offering to make yourself pure again. Um, and at the end of the day, the at least the way that the Jews understood it, is everybody died and went to Sheol, which is not like hell. We usually interpret it as meaning hell from a Christian framework. But the Jewish understanding, and the Old Testament seems to bear this out, is that they just, like, died and were dead. Like, dead, dead. And that's it. Like, they just stopped. Um, this is the way it seems to be understood. Now, whether we can interpret Sheol to be hell, or I don't even know. Like, it, there are a lot of questions about, like, whether that actually changed or not. Um, and I'm certainly not qualified enough to, to talk about it too terribly much. Um, but what I can say is, when Jesus shows up, when, you know, the, the veil covering the, the holiest of holies is torn from top to bottom, as it's reported in Matthew, when, you know, Paul tells us that, like, we were under the law, but then Jesus died and all of our sins were forgiven, and now, thank God, we are not under the law. We do not suffer its wrath. That means that, there's a new dispensation here. The New Testament dispensation is one that fundamentally changes the old rules. Where everything was under the law in the Old Testament, now we are still under the law, but under a spiritual law, a law that guides and does not condemn. Um, so long as you are Christian and accept Jesus and your faith will be accepted for righteousness as it was with Abraham way long ago. Um, so again, let's emphasize this distinction here. God did not change. God is still every bit as angry and wrathful as he was in the Old Testament, but his relationship to human beings has changed. Um, and the way I'd like to think about this is in terms of we're not ready for mercy. And I know this is a very strange idea, like mercy is absolute, like everybody should be loved, love is unconditional, so on and so forth. Like I, I totally understand and I get that. But what I'm saying here is that mercy on a grand scale isn't necessarily the healthiest thing in the world. Um, like mercy needs to be tempered with justice. 
Um, if God showed up in Exodus and said, hey, everyone, no laws for you. You can do whatever you want and I will just forgive you left and right. Everybody goes to heaven. Hooray. Everybody wins. As much as we now would be like, yes, we support this universal salvation. What a good God. If there were no consequences to our actions, we would probably tear ourselves apart. Um, like... You don't need a whole lot of incentive to get people to be awful to one another. Um, they'll do that all by themselves. Like if you disable laws or if you, you know, make people believe that, that they can do whatever they want without consequences, it's going to be the rare person indeed who decides to use that power for good. Like think back to Plato's Republic and the Ring of Gyges, this idea that like if you had a ring that could turn you invisible, who wouldn't go around stealing and murdering and doing whatever they could to like profit their own position? Um, like Tolkien even riffs on this in Lord of the Rings, like the power that the ring offers is the power to become invisible, to let your actions have no consequences. So mercy as great as it is and as absolute as it is and as core as it is to God's character can't be the only way that he expresses his relationship to us. And the argument seems to be then that in the Old Testament, justice was necessary to keep us in line. God's wrath had to be hanging over everybody's heads. It was only after the long and involved process of the Israelites enshrining these convictions you know, only after they went to Babylon and lost their autonomy and came back and then were practicing regular spiritual discipline, only then were they grown up enough, in a sense, to actually be able to handle mercy in a way that was mature. Um, if God had said in Exodus, you know, do whatever you want, anything goes, it's almost certain that they would have immediately turned to other gods because even with the law hanging over their head, they turned to other gods. Um, but now, here in the New Testament, we were ready for mercy, in a sense. Um, so this is one of the approaches, one of the answers that I have to offer. Um, the dispensationalist approach, the economics of grace approach. God's plan for humanity changed as humanity changed. And I want to emphasize, just again, because I don't want to, like, involve too much confusion that does not mean that god changed like frequently atheists like richard dawkins is always banging on about this um will emphasize the god of the old testament is a bully he threatens people into getting what he wants um and as a consequence a lot of christians i think have like gotten this filtered down through the internet and through atheism and they kind of have this conviction that like the God, God with Jesus is nice, but God without Jesus is mean. Um, and I really, I'm not sure how practical that is. Like God did not change. It's not like being a father made God a better person. Any good theologian will tell you Jesus was around at the beginning of the world. Like God creates the world through Jesus. That's what John one is all about. Um, Jesus was the firstborn in more than one sense. Like, he's not just God's first and only son, but also, like, he was the first thing um, besides God himself, because he is God. Again, theological weeds. It'll get very easy to get sidetracked here. Um, what I want to emphasize is that God can stay the same and still change the way that he acts toward us. Um, I'm a computer science nerd, so the reason, like, the, the example that I always come up with is a computer program. 
Um, like if you write an app, um, if you stick it on, you know, Google store or the iPhone store and like have everybody download it and your app changes, like it does different things depending on the hardware that you were dealing with or the software, or the operating system or whatever. That doesn't mean that you have written different code for every single different phone. What it means is you have one program the same set of text, the same words, the same code that modifies according to its situation. Like there's no discontinuity. You, you can't call somebody a hypocrite for changing the way they behave according to different circumstances. Like if in one person, if in one, if a person says, you know, I think World War II was justified. And then that same person goes on to say, I think the Iraq war was not justified. That person is not a hypocrite. Like they are not, you know, waffling on the subject of is war justified or not. They're saying in one circumstance, war is justified. In another circumstance, it is not. That's not changing. That's not hypocrisy. That's not, you know, even maturation. What that is, is an acknowledgement that circumstance is significant. God can be the same merciful and just, the same occasionally inclined to anger and wrath, the same jealous God of the Old Testament, and recognize that different tactics are needed to manage people in the New Testament. Um, same God, different plan. So let's move forward with this idea. Like if the dispensationalist approach emphasizes the differences in the way that God treats us over time, over the course of the Bible between the Old and New Testaments, let's talk about the similarities. Um, as I'm stressing here, God does not change between the Old and New Testament. God's way of dealing with humans does. Um, maybe that's because we grew up. Maybe that's because the circumstances were different. Maybe that's because like God was waiting for Alexander the Great to conquer the world and introduce the Greek language to everybody he could. Um, who knows? Like we cannot possibly know the mind of God. So we cannot understand the, the chain of causation leading to that particular moment in history being the one that God chooses to bring Jesus into the world. Um, whatever it was, God's way of interacting with us changed. Uh, but instead, let's look at the, what I call the medieval approach. Let's look at the similarities here. Let's de-emphasize the difference in the way that God treats us. Dispensationalists emphasize the change. Let's instead look at approaches that emphasize the similarity. Um, and there's a lot to say here. Um, the fact of the matter is, as much as we see the God of the Old Testament as the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament as the God of mercy, both of these are kind of exaggerations. Um, yes, there is more mercy in the New Testament, like the density of mercy is greater while the density of wrath seems to be greater in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that like there is in fact an actual change. God's mercy is all over the freaking Old Testament. Um, like you can see it in Abraham, in the fact that his faith is being counted for righteousness. You can see it in the conversation that Abraham has with God. Like God is about to smite Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin, which PS probably isn't homosexuality. That's another conversation for another day. Um, he's about to smite the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
why would you kill all those people? What if there's just one, like, what if there's, you know, a hundred good people in the city and God's like, then I wouldn't smite it. And Abraham's like, okay, so now we're arguing numbers. What if there were only 50 people in the city? And God's like, then I wouldn't smite it. And Abraham's like, okay, so what if there were only 10 good people in the city? And God's like, I see what you're up to. Yes, I will make sure that Lot is saved. And no, I won't destroy the city if there are even so much as 10 righteous people there. Notice that God is staying his hand here. Like, a just God wipes the city from the earth. You know, if the force of good in that city was not strong enough to overpower the evil, if it wasn't strong enough to convert, you know, the misdeeds into good deeds, presumably the city itself could be judged as a whole and nobody could hold God accountable for it. But God withholds his hand. God rescues Lot and his family from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He sets them apart. And even when Lot is starting to complain, oh man, it's such a long walk going from the city. What if we just went to like that little city over there? It's so small. Like, it's not a big deal. And God's like, all right, fine. Go ahead. Stay at the little wimpy city. Like, God is often doing this sort of stuff. Like, as early as Genesis, clearly, but throughout as well. You know, the Israelites over and over again in the book of Exodus fail to live up to God's standards. They're constantly whining about like, oh, there's no food. Oh, we want meat. Oh, where's the water? And God's like, all right, here's your food. Here's your meat. Here's your water. God is constantly providing for them. When they complain, God listens. God helps in all the ways that he can. That's mercy. Um... And sort of the crux, like the big passage that I want to point to here, which I've already delivered one lecture on, on like the book of Exodus, um, like back when I was teaching my philosophy class earlier this semester, like I covered a decent chunk of the book of Exodus, including the plagues, including the Passover celebration, and including the whole business with the golden calf. Um, and I want to sort of refocus on that because I really think this is sort of like this really important foundational keystone moment um, in understanding who God is. Like it's framed that way in the text. Um, it is frequently referred to elsewhere in the Old Testament. Clearly this is how the, the Israelites, the Hebrews understood God. Um, so this is back around Exodus chapter 32 and 33. Um, so Moses was hanging up on Mount Sinai and getting the laws from God and writing down the Ten Commandments and, you know, making sure that they knew everything that they were supposed to do about the tabernacle. Like so many, so many chapters about how they were going to build the tabernacle. Um, and then Moses comes down the mountain and what does he find? But Aaron has apparently melted down all the gold and all the silver that the Israelites took from Egypt. And he has built a golden calf out of it. And the Israelites, like they begged him, they were like, Aaron, let's melt down our, all our gold and make a golden calf. And we'll worship that because Moses has been up in the mountain for like two weeks and we can't wait anymore because you know, we're scared and we're hungry. And, and Aaron is like, okay, sure. So like they make this golden calf and the Israelites all worship it. And this is like very clear cut idolatry. Like Moses comes down the mountain and he's like, I cannot leave you jerks alone for two weeks before you're worshiping some other God. And he like throws down the tablets and breaks the 10 commandments. And like that ends up in the Ark of the Covenant. It's this whole big thing. Um, but what we kind of don't gloss over, like what you miss in the Charlton Heston movie is the fact that God actually gets really mad as well. Like, Moses ends up having to go to God, and God, and he's like, God, I'm really sorry about this whole idolatry thing. And God's like, nope, we're done here. 
Like, thanks, but no thanks. I thought you were my chosen people. Turns out you're all a bunch of faithless jerks. God out. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on. Let's not be too hasty. You rescued us from Egypt. You, you did all of those demonstrations. You did all the plagues. You, you, you destroyed the greatest empire in the world. Like, you made your voice known. Let, let's not, you know, jump to conclusions here. Like, we can fix this. We can totally fix this. That's not the end of the world. Yes, the Israelites are terrible all of the time um but you're god we can we can we can make this happen and god's like i don't know i i've put up with you guys long enough i'm sick to death of all of you israelites and you're whining and moses is like okay forget us like we're the worst let's talk about you um moses literally says to god like show me who you are and then we'll we, we can work something out and God's like, okay, seriously, I can't show you who I am. Like, you burst into flame at the very sight of me. And Moses is like, all right, then just, we, we can make this work. Like, just show a little bit of yourself to me. And we get this whole passage where, like, God hides Moses in this, like, crevice in the rock to, like, presumably protect him from the incredible radiance of God's glory. Um, and then in chapter 34, God literally walks in front of Moses. And like the King James has this wonderful little description where it says that like Moses sees his his hind parts or his hind quarters. It's kind of wonderful that like Moses gets to pop out and see God's butt or something. Um, but it's literally presented as the radiance of God passes. So let's jump into chapter 34. This is verse... Let's start with five and go from there. Um, and again, this is King James English because I love the poetry of it, but your translation may vary. Um, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So let's visualize this. We've got Moses hiding in the rock from the incredible power of God's radiance. We have God literally like passing by in some form. Um, and this is apparently more significant than like back when God was hanging out with Abraham and he like walked between the divided animals for the covenant as like the form of a, a smoking furnace and a, and a like burning lantern or something. Here we actually get like as close to God interacting with humans as we have seen since the Garden of Eden. And apparently like he's literally just walking and this voice is surrounding him, chanting these words, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. But let's take this passage apart because each of the things that are said about God here are sort of foundational to the Hebrew understanding of who God is. So we start with mercy. God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. So literally the first thing that anyone says about God in this situation, where God is actually revealed as close to his fullness as, you know, Moses's human frailty can allow. And the first thing that is revealed to him is God's mercy, his long suffering, his abundance in goodness and truth. And it reemphasizes it in the next 
in the next verse, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So we've got two parts to this description. On the one hand, there's this huge emphasis on God's mercy. And it is repeated, his long suffering, his graciousness, his generosity, his kindness, his goodness, his truth, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. But here's the second part, will by no means clear the guilty. Mercy is not a free pass with God. That's not how the Israelites understand it. Mercy is not you get to do whatever you want and God's just going to look the other way. No, the guilty will be punished. Mercy is offered to, at the very least, the faithful, those who respect God, those who fly his flag, those who practice his laws. Now, I suspect that it's a little too Christian of me to look at this and say, oh, so like the laws only exist as a sort of symbolic affiliation with God. It is us flying our flag. I suspect it's not quite that simple. The Jews certainly understand it differently than that. Whether that was correct or not is, you know, definitely something that only God can know. Um, or, you know, extremely meticulous Christian interpreters of the Bible. Like, again, it's complicated. Um, and once again, we're in hermeneutical weeds. Um, but suffice it to say that, like, the emphasis here is that God is merciful and God is just. God's justice does not abrogate his mercy. God's mercy does not abrogate his justice. And this is kind of hard to wrap our brains around. How can you be both just, 100% absolutely just, and 100% absolutely merciful? How can you be perfectly just and perfectly merciful all at the same time? And this is one of the things... The reason why I call this the medieval approach is because this is a question that the medievals wrestled with all of the time. Um, they were constantly trying to figure out how God could be both wrathful, just, and merciful. Um, but also notice in the New Testament, this is evident. Like we always emphasize God is really loving in the New Testament. God, Jesus, you know, Jesus forgives all of our sins. Hooray, mercy. Hooray, grace. Hooray, you know, us not having to lift a finger, but just believe in our belief being counted for righteousness. But notice that's not the whole story with the New Testament either. Like as much as, as, much as mercy is 100% on display here in the Old Testament, and as much as you can like reach virtually any page of the Old Testament and see God's mercy in action... Um, as much as God's wrath is very much part and parcel with his mercy in the Old Testament, so is God's mercy part and par parcel with his wrath in the New. Like, notice that Jesus isn't all sweetness and light. Like, we have that really weird episode with the olive tree where, like, Jesus goes up to the olive tree and he's like, hey, I want some food. And the tree is barren. And Jesus is like, well, screw you then. And he, like, kills the tree. Like, it's the one destructive miracle during Jesus' time. And scholars and theologians have been scratching their heads on this one forever. They have no idea why. Like, what, it's a tree. Like, it, it gives food when it gives food. Like, why is Jesus being mean to it? Because Jesus wanted food and it didn't give it. It's that simple. It may be just, or it may be unjust. Like, it may be that the tree was programmed not to give food at this point in time, but now it's God. He's right there. Jesus is here. Give food or die. 
that's appropriate. There is justice in this. Jesus was the creator of the universe. In a certain manner of speaking, the tree is being unjust, ungracious. It is being proud in a sense. Um, but if this is a little abstract for you, let's instead consider Jesus kicking all of the thieves out of the temple. Like perhaps you're familiar with this story. Apparently Jesus is like braiding a whip in the temple and then he starts like whipping people and kicking them out of the temple. Like, how dare you defile my father's house and turn it into a den of thieves? Like we all know this story, I assume. Like Christians are very familiar with it. Um, it is very much about justice. Like here is the temple, the holiest place in the world God is literally dwelling in the other room insofar as he can be said to dwell on this planet, you know, at all. And like Jesus is like, I cannot believe that this has turned into an economic thing. I cannot believe that people are selling things. I, I cannot believe how much, you know, trade and bartering is going on here. This is disgusting. This is a defilement of everything that God represents. And as a result, he kicks them all out violently. Like he's whipping them. These people are hurt and justly hurt. That's the emphasis here. Jesus is right to do this. This is justice. Um, and as much as we see Jesus as merciful, there are a lot of passages like this. Like notice the passage that no Protestant is terribly comfortable with. That passage where he's talking about, you know, I am the true vine. And, you know, you could be part of the vine, but then you're going to get cut off from the vine if you are not producing fruit. And I will graft another branch onto the vine. Like, what Jesus is effectively saying here is be good, do good works, you know, produce good fruit, or I will cut you off. And as much as Protestants are really not happy with this passage, because we are all about the whole justification by faith alone, and, you know, you, you, all you have to do is believe and you will be saved. Like, Catholics, as soon as they saw the Protestant heresy showing up, this was the first passage they pointed to. They're like, hey... We're going to convene a council, Council of Trent. Let's talk about this passage because it's here in the Bible and it rejects a lot of what Protestants have to say or seems to reject it. And Protestants kind of have to work hard to interpret this. Um, like, it's not undoable. Theolo theology is is creative in a sense. Um, and a, But what I want to emphasize is Jesus is saying here, you know, people are going to get punished. Like, just because you say Abba Father does not mean you will be saved, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there will be punishment. And we get lots of bonus descriptions about this, especially in the apocalyptic passages. Like you read that chunk of Matthew where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. You get that whole like one person will disappear from the well and another person will remain. Or heck, look at Revelation. Revelation is Jesus showing up with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and wrecking humans left and right. An army of angels destroying the army of demons and laying waste to the humans in their wake such that the birds are glutted on the flesh of the dead. Like, the New Testament has its fair share of hardcore wrath passages. And we would be very remiss to overlook them. Um... I think part of the reason why we tend to emphasize mercy in the New Testament and wrath in the Old, why we tend to see greater density of mercy in the New Testament is because we don't have the time. Like, think about the, just the structure of these two books. The Old Testament covers, like, 
possibly 1500 years of Israelite history. If, you know, Moses lived in like, if the whole Exodus from Egypt happened in around like 1400 BCE is I think the dominant explanation is at this point, like we're talking about a long period of time and the cycles are very visible. The fact that, you know, God is willing to give mercy to his people. The people reject that mercy in one way or another. They, they like embrace it, but then they turn away. And then the, God has to punish them to sort of snap them out of it, wake them up. And then once they are woken up, they cry out to God, God, save us from our bad behavior. Like send a prophet, send a judge. And God does. He sends Gideon or he sends Deborah or he sends Samson or he sends Elijah or he sends Elisha. And he saves the people and everyone's happy and we eventually get back into the same behavior all over again. Like even the, the exile to Babylon, that's a big time punishment cycle. Like here we are, all these people living in the monarchy under you know the line of David, and it's a pretty good time. They're fairly well protected. God is killing off their enemies. God is blessing them and cursing their enemies. And still they go off and they like perform bad sacrifices and they worship idols and they go up to the gardens and the high places. And as a result, God punishes them with bad kings and the kings are bad and they punish, and they hurt people. And it's, it's a cycle. And eventually we get to the point where God's like, forget it, monarchy is done. I'm going to have you all captured by Babylon. So once again, unfaithful people punished by God cry out to him in Babylon and God hears them and takes mercy on them. But notice this, these cycles tend to take decades to resolve. Like typically it's a generation's worth of time. So we're saying like 30, 40 years. But notice the New Testament, that's like all it is. Like, if we take the earliest possible date of composition for, like, the earliest written book, probably, like, the Book of Romans or one of the other Pauline letters, which we're saying probably dates to about 50 BC, or 50 CE, 50 AD, and then we take the last possible date of composition, probably something like Revelation that would could very well have been written at, like, 90 to maybe 110 AD, we're looking at a span of 60 years, and that's it. We're looking at one cycle. We're looking at one punishment cycle. And yes, it's the cycle that breaks the cycle, for sure. Like, there is, in fact, a change. I don't want to de-emphasize this. The dispensationalists are absolutely right to emphasize, okay, it used to be one way, now it's a different way. But all of the usual cycles that we see in the Old Testament of falling away from God, punishment, crying out for help, and then mercy being provided, what we are seeing is the end of the huge cycle and one cycle itself. We just see the mercy here. All of the writers here are emphasizing this merciful act. They do not go on to talk about the next 500 years, which will be full of persecution and turmoil and like good emperors and bad emperors and the fall of the Roman Empire and chaos and plague and suffering and all this other stuff. So once again, because of the limited scope, I think the writers of the New Testament have the leisure to focus on mercy more than they would focus on wrath. Whereas the very conventions of storytelling in the Old Testament, this effort to tr sort of track God's actions, both those that are just and that punish people, but also those that are mercy and forgive, that means that there's more of a 50-50 split than there is in the New Testament, where mercy is a little bit more evident because we happen to be in that phase of God's plan. 
Um, now, that's not to say that we are in the same cycles before. There could very well be a change there. I think it's not entirely clear whether or not like we should be able to interpret these punishment cycles as pers continuing after Jesus. Certainly, Christians are forgiven at this point. But that doesn't mean that the world is done being punished for things. I think it's more complicated than that. Um, and I think the medievals, to some degree, appreciated this. So the main thesis that I'm trying to like work my way around to here by emphasizing, you know, the bad, the merciful moments in the Old Testament and the wrath moments in the New Testament and since, is that God hasn't changed. God is, as the medievals would say, absolutely just, 100% just, and 100% merciful. The medievals would emphasize, as I talked about in my Aquinas lecture for my philosophy class, that God is simple. This is one characteristic. The fact that we understand God as being just in one moment and merciful in another isn't some reflection on who God is. It's a reflection on how poorly we understand him. He is one God. He does the same thing consistently. The difference that we see is based on our own tendency to split hairs and divide and understand things by like putting them into progressively smaller and smaller boxes. The medievals instead emphasize that God is one thing. God is absolutely consistent. God does not change. But when we change, when we are inconsistent, God behaves differently to us, at least as we understand it. And as a consequence, we see God of wrath and God of mercy. When in fact, God is one and the same thing. God is merciful. We can say that effectively about God. That's what Aquinas would say. Like the other medievals tend to disagree. Like Damascene, for example, like John Damascene is all about like, we can't say anything positive about God uh, because we do not understand his qualities and, and we would only like ineffectively describe what God is actually like. Aquinas would go so far as to say it's comparable. It's analogical. When we say God is wrathful, we are saying something vaguely true about God. God is not wrathful in the same way that like a human is wrathful. God is not just in the same way that a human is just, but there's a, comp there's a comparison to be made. God's overarching quality of that like comes through in his existence that defines who he is, is related to justice more than it is related to injustice. And likewise, God's, character is more related to what we call mercy than what we would call like stinginess or unmercy. Um, God can be and is both 100% just and 100% merciful. It's just we can't fully appreciate how that works. We see these concepts as opposed to one another where the medievals are striving to see them as one and the same concept. They see the division as being our problem, not God's. So if the dispensationalists emphasized the change in the way that God behaved towards us, the medievals emphasize and said the similarity, the way that God is consistent, the way that God always has the same character, the same behavior, the way that justice and mercy are at the end of the same, at the end of the day, the same thing. Like, good justice is merciful, good mercy is just. And that's how the medievals understand it. This is not a change. This is 
all one plan. This is all one God. There will be wrath and there will be justice in New Testament times. Jesus tells us as much. In the world you will have trouble, but he has overcome the world and mercy will ultimately triumph. Just as in the Old Testament, for all of our genocides and bears tearing apart children, God is ultimately saying, I am only doing that when there is no other recourse, when you are explicitly rejecting me to protect you from falling away from me. This is the best that God can offer. And I don't say that in the sense of limitations. Like, that's a whole other question for a whole other day. Is God omnipotent? Problem of evil? That's a mess that we cannot even crack into if we're going to, like, successfully deal with the third possible approach here. Um, but it is sort of hiding in the background of this discussion. Like, how does God's omnipotence work? Is evil in any sense, is pain in any sense warranted when we have a supposedly omnipotent God hanging over our heads? And there's tons of answers to that. And I'm, again, not going to get into it. We discuss it quite a bit in my other philosophy lectures. Um, if we do want to do just a whole problem of evil discussion, just let me know. Again, I'm always accepting emails, always accepting questions. ProfBKozlowski2 at gmail.com. Email me if you want to hear more about this. This summer, I'm hoping to get a couple more of these lectures out. Um, but suffice it to say, for now, these two concepts are compatible. God's justice is compatible with his mercy. They are one and the same characteristic as the medievals would emphasize. Um, but let's turn our attention to the third approach. Because as much as I absolutely love the medievals, and as much as I think the dispensationalists are on the right track with their description of, of God's differences, I am also really fascinated with the sort of contemporary interpretations by Christianity. Um, the existentialists have done a lot of thinking and soul searching about the evil in the world, about the, the justice in the world, about our relationship to God. Um, and the Russians especially, I keep running across this really fascinating strain in Russian thought. Um, so I want to talk about two passages in Russian literature, um, both of which I've talked about a little bit in my humanities lectures, but I want to sort of zero in on them a little closer now. And the first passage I want to talk about is the rebellion chapter um, in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Like, I love Dostoevsky unapologetically, like, probably my favorite fiction writer. Like, love him to death. He can do no wrong in my eyes, as much as he may very well have been an anti-Semite, and I do have to kind of admit his failings on that one. Um, and he's also caught up in that whole 19th century nationalism movement that, like, everybody is doing at this point. Um, but at the end of the day, I find Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky to be an incredibly compassionate thinker. He is someone who is very in tune with human fallibility, but also generosity and mercy. Um, which is why I find it so interesting that in Ivan's chapter on rebellion in the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky emphasizes the exact opposite. Like the whole argument that Ivan is making is that some people have committed such terrible atrocities that Ivan cannot find it in his heart to forgive them. Um, and in fact, he is so offended at the just basest human evil being depicted here like the the stuff that people are doing at this time that he even rejects god like the the descriptions he use are he uses are rough like I, i'm not even terribly comfortable describing all of them here because they're just horrible 
Um, and these are things like reported in Dostoevsky's time that were probably things that happened. Like they probably did exist. Dostoevsky may have been grabbing some propaganda here. It's entirely possible that the Russians were up jumping the, the atrocities of war um, when they were fighting the Turks. But it's also entirely possible that these things happen. Like I haven't done my historical research enough to know. But Ivan is describing like the, the people capturing children and their mothers in, in pillaging cities and then they'll like release the children and set their dogs on them like to tear them apart while keeping the mothers close to make them watch like this level of cruelty um and whether or not you think the turks did this whether or not this is racist on dostoevsky's part whether or not this is historically accurate it doesn't matter because we've totally done stuff like that like ignore those particular examples you will always be able to find historical examples of humans being 100% totally unambiguously cruel to one another horrible to one another doing things that cause incredible pain suffering for no good reason like never mind greed and selfishness like I'm talking about like the crusaders you know looting and pillaging and raping their way through the Middle East in you know the the 12th and 11th centuries i mean say what you want about genocide it's a terrible awful just abominable thing and i don't want to downplay that whatsoever but at the very least i can wrap my head around why one would want to commit genocide and it happens frequently enough in history that you can sort of recognize that there is some human tendency toward this whether it's the greeks viewing all of the non-greek speaking peoples as barbarians or the you know the jews as we talked about exterminating the canaanites um, or contemporary examples like the holocaust or the rwandan genocide or any number of these things that's motivated by fear, by selfishness, by presumably understandable human emotions. But what Ivan is talking about here is cruelty, sadism, for no more reason than the pure joy of causing harm to others. It is completely egregious. It is completely inexplicable. It is completely unforgivable in Ivan's eyes. And that's what he wants to emphasize. What he is stressing is that there are people, there are actions so hideous, so awful, so wrong, that God himself should not be allowed to forgive them. And Ivan himself judges God for forgiving them. What I want to stress here, especially in contrast with what I've said before about both the dispensational attitude and this sort of dichotomy between God's wrath and God's mercy, is that sometimes wrath is justified. Sometimes God wiping out an entire civilization can, from a certain perspective, be warranted. That's what Dostoevsky is suggesting here. I'm not saying you have to believe it, and it's certainly not the last word that Dostoevsky has on the subject. By the end of the Brothers Karamazov, he's going to take, as we would predict, a much more compassionate stance. But he is opening up the possibility that wrath, this wide-scale judgment, these miraculous acts of destruction, can in fact be the right thing in a certain situation. Ivan is showing us this. Ivan is arguing this. Ivan is saying that a God of mercy alone isn't a God that he is willing to believe in. Um, 
And the other example that I wanted to sort of draw out, the other Russian literature, is Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. Um, this is, again, another story that I've talked about extensively in my humanities lectures. Like, I do basically like a blow-by-blow -blow account through the entire book um, in the last few lectures that I recorded this past spring. Um, so I don't, again, want to, like, recapitulate all of it here. Feel free to go listen to those lectures. Again, I need the traffic. Keep it coming. Um, but at the same time, the overall thrust of the story, the overall premise is that, you know, here is the devil. He shows up in Soviet Moscow and he starts causing havoc. Um, and the havoc that he causes is, for the most part, singularly directed at correcting injustice, at condemning people who are guilty of corruption, of greed, of cowardice. Um, he goes in and he sees Berlioz, the corrupt editor of a, a Peter's of a Moscow publication, decapitated. He will like whisk people off in the middle of nowhere. He'll you know get people condemned to prison and the secret police. Um, and Bulgakov frames this all first as kind of comical, like it's all presented as hilarious that all of these bad people are getting their comeuppances in these sort of ironic and hilarious ways. But the overall message that's being presented here is that when a society is this corrupt, when it is this unjust, it takes the devil, condemnation, damnation, really, to correct things. Um, that in a society that is this broken with human evil, the black magic that Bulgakov describes, it takes the pure evil of Satan and his ilk to correct it. Um, and as much as this is not a theological argument, like Bulgakov probably was not a Christian, I have my questions about that because I don't think he's being entirely honest with his attitudes because, you know, Soviet censors and all. Um, but I do think that it offers a really interesting insight into Christian theology insofar as all of us sitting around, you know, scratching our heads, why does God let the devil run loose? This is why. Because the devil performs an important service in Christian theology. He properly punishes wrongdoing. That's his job. That's what God ordained him to do. That is his eternal role. Just as God's eternal role is merciful or just or both, as we've seen. Um, and I want to sort of, like, talk about this idea that wrath and the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the justice of God, all of these potentially destructive acts that we see in the Old Testament especially, you know, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the extermination of the Canaanites, or the captivity in Babylon, or, you know, any of these things, even the stuff since the Bible, you know, the Crusades, and the, like, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, like, all of these huge catastrophes in human history, God allows them to happen. And as much as, you know, philosophers have fretted over the evil that God allows to happen, I don't think many have discussed the possibility of these things being good, um, of being necessary, of the change that is wrought when these empires and nations and armies collapse and fall, that that is a part of the divine economy, of the divine plan, of the way that grace is issued. That God will not allow a human agency 
a human institution to become so powerful that it becomes unstoppable. It will always fail. Powers, principalities will always end. And that's a good thing. It's hard to see it in the moment, for sure. Like, I say this knowing full well that I am referring to American culture as much as anyone else. Ours will not be the exception to the rule. We are not living in the infinite empire. Um, if history and theology tells us anything, it's that we too will pass away, um, or at least transform into something different. And as much as I know that that transformation will be accompanied by violence and horror and, you know, again, the same sort of atrocities that Ivan is describing in Rebellion, I suppose what I'm forced to conclude is that it will become necessary. When our nation has become too tyrannical, when it has, you know, become too much of, a, of an evil force in the world, when the harm it is doing to itself, its citizens, its other nations is ultimately tallied up there will come a point where it is doing more harm than good and it will need to be destroyed and that that destroying will be accompanied by horrors the likes of which we civilized americans can only imagine and read about in their history books but it will be necessary and it will be better that that happen than that us that that than that uh, this power continue in this way it is best to die in that case. Um, and that's a hard thing to wrap our brains around. Like, I don't pretend this, and I don't glory in it either. Like, I don't want to downplay the awfulness that accompanies, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, or the, the Mongols sweeping through Europe, or um, the Black Plague, or, you know, like, revolutions in England or in France. Like... I'm aware of the body counts, I'm aware of the suffering, but the modern age could not exist without that suffering, without those body counts. Like, it's a very big romantic idea, but I think there is truth in it from a Christian perspective as well. God uses the rise and fall of nations to get his will done in these cases. Um, so, let me temper this, though. Because I want to stress some, like one other major theological idea, very prevalent in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that really dovetails with this. Namely, when Jesus tells, you know, I believe it's in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't remember right off the top of my head. When Jesus tells us that it is not what comes, what goes into our mouth that defiles us, but what comes out. Like, this is a fairly basic theological idea. The, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. He, he, from a Jewish perspective, this is radical insofar as he's, like, overturning the Jewish, um, like, dietary restrictions. Like, now we can eat pork, or now we can, you know, eat shellfish. Um, and, you know, at the time, like, when Jesus is initially making this, it doesn't seem that clear. But from a Christian perspective, it's reinterpreted, and you get this whole thing. But the theological idea is very clear. What you take in, what you eat, what you, you know, imbibe, like, it's not booze, it's not shellfish, it's not, you know, what you eat that makes you dirty, what makes you wrong. It's what you do, what you say. What defiles you before God has much less to do with what you take in than what you put out, what you do. And it doesn't take a whole lot of theological jumping 
to get to the conclusion that what you suffer does not hurt you. It is what you do, what you commit that hurts you. And this brings up a really interesting sort of theological framework, which I think the Russians are really tapped into here. Suffering makes us stronger across the board, even when it kills us. Like, let's disagree with Nietzsche here as well. God killing you does not have a moral value in determining whether or not you are good. All that determines whether or not you are good is what you do. And by that logic, it is always better to die than to kill. It is always better to suffer insult than to insult someone yourself. It is always better to be wronged than to wrong others. That's a fairly important Christian axiom. That is something that basically the entire Bible is emphasizing over and over and over and over and over again. And Christians come under fire for it. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I do not want to sort of downplay this. This is essentially contributing to a sort of Christian tendency to apathy. Um, it's probably why so many Christians tend to be conservatives, because if, in fact, or Christians change the status quo, they are running the risk of possibly doing harm to others, and therefore it's better to pretend apathy. I am not doing anything. I am not changing anything. I will cause as little ripple in the world as I possibly can. And that's definitely the wrong way to go about it. Like, that's also super obvious. Um, again, Jesus very clearly emphasizes several times, you know, it is your fruit that will decide your fate. Like, I will cut off and burn the branches that do not produce good fruit. Um, so therefore, apathy is not an option. You need to be proactive in this world. But most importantly, you cannot be antagonistic. You cannot cause harm. But notice what this means, theologically speaking. It means that on from God's perspective, it doesn't matter what God does to you. And I don't want to get into the whole theological question of like, does God tempt us? Does God, you know, do harm to us? Does God do evil? Like typically the, the mainline Christian perspective is God only makes us stronger. All the, th the challenges that God faces us with are all ultimately to our benefit. I don't know for sure how much of that is the case that clearly like the bible emphasizes that god is good to us that god is merciful to us that god is long-suffering forgiving all those things that we talked about and that is clearly the first and most important thing but notice that at the end of the day god causing us pain is not god doing harm to us because, as Jesus said, the only way that we can truly harm ourselves in, God, in God's perspective is to do something wrong. As long as God continues to allow us our freedom to do both right and wrong, it doesn't matter what God does to us, short of like taking control of our wills, that's a whole nother matter, let's leave the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the, the potter out of this conversation for the time being. Um, but whatever happens to us does not affect our standing with God. And contrasted with the eternal benefit or eternal destruction that we are faced with at the, in the afterlife, according to Christian teaching, whatever harm we receive in this world is a pittance. Like, 
it's negligible. It does not matter. Like, we could suffer and die because of bone cancer, experience excruciating pain every hour of the day, and it will not budge our relationship with God in one direction or another. It will not, from God's perspective, harm us. It will not do anything wrong. Because, again, it has no moral value. The only way that we can harm our relationship with God is to do bad things. So with that in mind, God is always right to punish wrong. God is always justified in causing harm on a physical, like, worldly perspective. The rise and fall of nations does not change anyone's goodness or badness. And if anything, if that can teach someone to do good, then it's always worth it. Like, if 100,000 people die because of, you know, suffering or pain or, or illness or whatever, and it does not change their, you know, like, relationship with God, again, because it's not changing what they are doing, but that lesson teaches one person in a contemporary world that they are not to do bad things to others, that's a net win. And I know that this is, like, frustrating and complicated and difficult and seems really unfair. Like, I recognize all of that. I recognize that suffering sucks. I do not want to downplay it. I do not want to downplay any of this. But I do want to emphasize that from the Christian teaching, from the Christian perspective, from God's perspective, the suffering doesn't matter all that much. Pain doesn't matter all that much. Living and dying doesn't matter all that much. When contrasted with eternal salvation or eternal damnation. When contrasted with sin and its potential for harm. Like, if it comes down to, you know, kill or be killed, the correct answer in almost every Christian teaching is to be killed. It is better to die. Better to turn the other cheek. Better to, you know, let somebody else take your coat and then give them your shirt as well. Because at the end of the day, you are doing good and therefore making yourself better. You are saving yourself in God's eyes. And to kill, to defend yourself, to potentially cause harm, to potentially, you know, sin, is always more dangerous. Always. No question, no exception, always. The aggressor is always wrong from God's perspective. Because the only one who can rightfully be the aggressor, the judge, who can rightfully decide, is God. And so the dichotomy that we're presented with here is God is always right to judge, and we are always right to be merciful. Always. Like, no exceptions. If you take the Christian standpoint as strict truth... If you do not measure it or temper it with this idea that we can control our circumstances, if you do not pay attention to this utilitarian idea that, you know, we will do the best for the most number of people and we can somehow do that because we understand what the consequences of our actions will be, if we assume that God will swoop in and change and make things right as long as we do the right thing, the answer will always be mercy for us. And it will always be safe for God to judge 
and for God's wrath to be warranted. God can correct us through pain, but we can never use pain to correct one another. That's what it comes down to. And I don't know if this is completely clear. I too, I'm not like, not all Christians believe this. Let me start there. This is the conclusion that I've personally come to. I find it incredibly compelling. I think it is powerful and an important guide to my actions as, you know, a moral agent and Christian. Um, not, you like, if you don't believe that this is the case, that's fine. That does not, like, hurt your relationship to Christianity. Again, many people disagree about the fine theological nuances here, and that's okay. Like, let me emphasize this. We've talked about three different perspectives on Christianity. We've emphasized the differences between the way that God behaves with the dispensational attitude, how, you know, the God of the Old Testament was more inclined to wrath, not because he was different, but because we were different, whereas the God of the New Testament is inclined to mercy, not because we are somehow, or not because he is somehow changed, but because we now warrant it. Um, we've talked about the similarities through the light lens of the medievals. God is, at the end of the day, the same. He is wrathful in the New Testament, and he is merciful in the Old Testament. Um, we just, either because of our perspective or because of our own sort of failure to appreciate God's qualities, see only one or the other, or rather sort of tend to see them as two distinct behaviors of potentially two distinct times and possibly God changing over that time, which is wrong. Um, and now I've emphasized that wrath itself, this justice, this potential harm that God is causing, is overall justified. There are lots of theological nuances here. Um, and all of these perspectives, like if you choose to adopt one and reject the other, you're still welcome in Christendom. Like, maybe the most powerful lesson there is to learn from the history of Christianity, certainly one of the ones that I try and keep at the forefront of my mind, is that Christians with differing ideas of what Christianity looks like can coexist as Christians, and should. This has always been an important part of Christianity. Like, even in the first century, part of the reason why there are four Gospels in the Bible instead of just one is because the early Christians thought it was important for differing voices to coexist within the faith. Um, this was important. You could have Tertullian banging on about ethics and Origen making these big allegorical descriptions of the Bible in the same faith, coexisting both believers without question. Um, there is not one answer to the question how to reconcile the God of wrath with the God of mercy. So if my conclusion is I'm cool with the God of wrath, you can look at me and say, mm, I'm not sure that's what the Bible says. Here are the reasons why. Here are the passages that I'm pointing to. Here are the conclusions that I've come to. And you might convince me, you might not convince me. Either way, we can both still be Christians. We can both still look at each other and conclude that we are believers. Notice that one of the major positions that I am taking in my argument that humans should always practice mercy and let God do the wrath part is that it is never my job to judge. Like, that's pretty damn clear in the Bible. Like, um... 
judge not lest you be judged is a constant theme like because we are receiving mercy we are to give mercy to others that is also a constant theme and of course there's that great passage vengeance is mine i will repay says god i.e not humans god is the one wronged therefore god will take responsibility for making sure that justice prevails maybe not in this life but down the road so if I am to conclude that mercy is my job and ju judgment is God's, that mercy is mine because I can trust Jesus to make everything right in the end, and most importantly because I recognize that I am receiving mercy from Jesus. Like, if I am being forgiven my, you know, $10 million debt, then why would I hesitate to f uh, forgive somebody else their $5 debt to me? Like, that's what that parable is all about then I'm certainly not in a position to say, you are a Christian, you are not a Christian, these are the theological things that divide us. Like, the only basis we have to go on for determining those lines is, do you believe in Jesus, yes or no? Um, if somebody says, I don't believe in Jesus, then I'm like, oh, so you're not a Christian. And there's not a discussion to be had there. Um, if somebody says to me, yes, I am a Christian, and I'm like, hey, you don't look like a Christian, this is why... Yes, I can determine whether I should trust them based on their fruits, and again, should. We've got plenty of uh, ordinances about that in the Bible as well. But at the end of the day, if they say, hey, I'm doing good works, and I am a Christian, but I disagree with you about X, Y, and Z points of theology, like maybe I don't, bap or maybe I do baptize my children and you don't, or maybe I, you know, think the world was created in 10 million years while you think that it was only in seven literal days. That's fine. We can coexist. We can call each other Christians. We can call each other brother because at the end of the day, we recognize the same head, the same authority, the same lordship. So it's okay. This is not authoritative. I am not authoritative. I am not a pastor. I am not a priest. I am not the Pope. I am not even a theology scholar. I am a theology student and I am definitely not God. So, you know, as a Protestant, I suggest that you read your Bible and come to your own conclusions. If you are a Catholic, then talk to your priest. Talk to the people you trust. Talk to your teachers. Um, get their perspective on this. I offer this because I know there's a lot of bad information on the internet. I know that there's a lot of conflicting positions. I know a lot of you don't know who to trust. Um, I imagine there are tons of Christians listening to this who are asking these questions of themselves, maybe dissatisfied with what their friends or their family or what they're coming up with from their interpretation of the Bible. These are the conclusions that I have reached. They are not definitive. Um, they are conclusions that you can reach. And I find them profound. And since you apparently trust me enough to listen this far, I guess hopefully they will work for you as well. Um, keep that in mind. Um, so when we talk about this distinction, this Old Testament God of wrath, how do we square that with the New Testament message of mercy? What I want to emphasize is that the New Testament message of mercy is important for us, but history isn't going to change. We are meant to be merciful to one another. We cannot hold the law over each other's heads, much less the heads of non-Christians. Um... Instead, we are directly ordered to practice mercy absolutely. And how you reconcile your own behavior with that 
is going to be something you're going to have to figure out on your own. Like, there's literally no way. Like, how I practice my judge justice versus mercy in the classroom is something I personally have to de decide with the help of the institutional guidelines and all the other stuff going on. I can't tell you how to balance these. But what I can tell you is that both are necessary. Um, what I can pretty confidently say, based on tons of biblical examples, is that God practices justice and God practices mercy. And at the end of the day, God's justice is, in its own way, a kind of mercy. We deserve punishment, and, and any time that punishment corrects us, that is its own brand of mercy. Um, and we'd be hard-pressed to recognize it. Like, we'd be hard-pressed to reject it. Um, we are often have a lot of trouble recognizing the stuff that we're dealing with as mercy, but there it is. So when you read the Old Testament, keep that in mind. Like, recognize that God is teaching. God is showing mercy through his wrath. By, you know, cutting off evil trees at the root, he is allowing good ones to grow. By, you know, killing thousands, maybe even millions of people, God is making room for his salvific message, his salvific history. And at the end of the day, as horrible as it is for somebody to say this, they had it coming. Like, we all have it coming. That's the message here. That's the whole Christian teaching. We deserve death, all of us, to the last, no exceptions. And God was nice enough, generous enough, long-suffering enough, forgiving enough, merciful enough to let some of us get out of it. That's what mercy looks like. As, you know, grim as that perspective may be. So I hope that helps. Um, if you do have more questions about this, because again, we ended up in a lot of weird theological territory between the problem of evil and hermeneutics and all this other stuff. If you have more questions about this, feel free to point them my way. Again, feel free to email me, profbkozlowski2 at gmail.com. Um, I am always interested in coming up with new topics for lectures and talking about new nuanced stuff like this. Or, heck, if you just want to send me an email about how wrong I am because you're a pastor or a priest or you're a better biblical scholar than I am, feel free to send that too. I'll be happy to, you know, print a retraction or a correction if I think you've made a really compelling case. Um, in the meantime, keep watching. There will be more lectures hopefully this summer. I am one of these days hopefully going to get around to Heidegger. Um, I don't know how many other projects I have to undertake, although I am working on a couple of fiction projects in the meantime. I don't know what they'll look like down the road. Um, but stay tuned, you know, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, maybe one of these days I'll actually be able to make money off of these things and be able to spend more of my time devoted to my internet presence um, than I can at the moment. Um, but that very much depends on you. So, again, share them if you have people who would be interested in this or if you think that this was good. Um, and, again, let me know if there's anything more you want me to talk about down the road. In the meantime, good luck. Um, happy reading and... I hope to talk again soon.